I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. Welcome to part three of Hamlet. So grab your copy and open to act one, scene four, and we'll start. And lucky for us, we've seen these guys before. It's Hamlet and Horatio and Marcellus. You may remember them from the end of Act 1, Scene 2, when they were going off and they said they would meet up on the platform between 11 and 12 that night. And here, as promised, is that scene. Hamlet starts it off. The air bites shrewdly. It is very cold. Shrewdly means sharply or bitterly, but it also describes the way in which an actual shrew, that little biting animal, bites. And we're used to people describing cold air as biting, but this is actually sort of an original and weird way to describe it. So don't forget, it's very old, so some of our own stuff comes from there. And Horatio replies, It is a nipping and an eager air. And this is one of the first examples in this play of what we might call wit. It's a trading back and forth of language. So Horatio says it's nipping in the same way that Hamlet says it bites shrewdly. And eager, eager doesn't mean excited. It can mean sharp or even sour. It's, it's a literal play on that word shrewdly that Hamlet uses. Remember, they're using cue scripts, which means that Horatio gets his cue directly from Hamlet's line. So those words are playing right on each other. Obviously, this is a serious moment, but they're almost joking around a little bit in the language. Hamlet says, what hour now? In other words, what time is it now? Horatio says, I think it lacks of 12. Lacks means it's sort of just short of 12. And Marcellus pipes up, no, it is struck. So we know it's sometime after midnight. Horatio says, indeed, I heard it not. It then draws near the season wherein the spirit held his wont to walk. Season here means something more like time. And held his wont means he was accustomed to walk or sort of observed the habit of walking. In other words, that he's walked this way the previous few nights or around this time at least. And while this concentration on the temperature and the time, well, for one thing, we've been inside for two scenes. And remember, this is being performed late afternoon, probably in the spring or summer. So we need to remind the audience of what time it is, what the weather feels like, setting the scene. And Horatio also does that beautifully at the end of this section, where he says, oh, this is around the time when that ghost showed up. So the scene is really perfectly set for the ghost to enter. And then, of course, Shakespeare does a little bit of misdirection. We hear a noise off stage, and that noise is exactly what was promised in Act 1, Scene 2, when the king said he was going to be drinking tonight, and when he drank, the trumpets were going to signal to the cannons, which were going to fire off. So that's probably what we're hearing in the background of this scene. And Horatio hears that and says, What does this mean, my lord? Hamlet says, The king doth wake tonight, and takes his rouse, keeps wassail, and the swaggering upspring reels. And as he drains his drafts of Rhenish down... The kettle drum and trumpet thus bray out the triumph of his pledge. So wake means literally to stay awake all night. Takes his rouse, you know, rouse is something pretty close to carouse in the sense that we use it. It means that he's up drinking. Keeps wassail means to drink a toast over and over again. And the swaggering upspring reels, there's a lot of debate over what exactly this means, but it probably means something like does these sort of blustering, jumping dances, reels or dances. And upspring is what it sounds like. It's a jump. A draft, even though it's spelled a different way, is exactly how we use it today. It's sort of a cup's worth of drink, like you'd have a draft of beer. Rhenish is a wine from the Rhine region in Germany, sort of the famous wine of the time. And notice those D sounds drains his drafts. It gives it a kind of blustery feel to it. And by the same token, you get that verb bray out, like a donkey brays. It's this very drunken, messy way of talking. It's not just that they play or that they speak out, they bray out. 
And what do they bring out? It's the triumph of his pledge. Triumph is literally like the public celebration of the ritual he promised, what he pledged to do back in scene two. And remember, Horatio wasn't there at the time, so he asks Hamlet, is it a custom? And Hamlet replies, I marryest. Marry, which we've seen before, means I swear by Mary. It's like, yeah, sure it is. And then he's going to go into a longer speech about drunkenness and a few other things, because remember, we're still waiting on the ghost, but he's going to take our mind away from it. He says, yeah, it's a custom, but to my mind, though I am native here and to the manner born, it is a custom more honored in the breach than the observance. To my mind, you know, in my opinion, even though I'm native here, even though I was born here and to the manner born, used to this sort of tradition, it is a custom more honored in the breach. It's a custom that is actually more honorable for us when it's broken than the observance, than when it's actually carried out. He says, this heavy-headed revel east and west makes us traduced and taxed of other nations. Heavy-headed is drunken like you are when you are drunk, and a revel is a celebration of drinking usually. East and West, so in every direction, other nations slander and disparage us. That's what traduced and taxed means. But it isn't just slander and disparage. Those T sounds are important. It's very harsh, and it sounds like they're attacking us for our behavior as Danes. And how do those other nations slander them? They clip us drunkards, and with swinish phrase, soil our addition. Clip, you'll sometimes see it spelled as cleep, C-L-E-P-E. It just means call, but it's a much more active way of saying that. And with swinish phrase, literally by calling us pigs, they soil our addition. They dirty our good name. Addition is really like a title, so our good name. And he says, and indeed it takes from our achievements, though performed at height, the pith and marrow of our attribute. So this behavior takes away from what we do, even though they're performed at height, sort of outstandingly at their highest moment. It takes from them the pith and marrow of our attribute. Pith is sort of the essential core, and marrow is like the heart. You've heard of bone marrow. It's the very center. So it takes the central, most important part from our attribute, from our reputation that people attribute to us. And you're going to see this happen in a lot of Hamlet speeches from now on. He's going to take an incident, and he's going to turn it inward. He says, So oft it chances in particular men that for some vicious mole of nature in them, as in their birth, wherein they are not guilty, since nature cannot choose his origin, by the o'ergrowth of some complexion, oft breaking down the pales and forts of reason, or by some habit that too much o'erleavens the form of plausive manners, that these men carrying, I say, the stamp of one defect being nature's livery or fortune's star, their virtues else be they as pure as grace, as infinite as man may undergo, shall in the general censure take corruption from that particular fault. And that's a hell of a run-on sentence. One thing you'll notice in the verse is there's lots of what's called feminine endings. It's a hugely sexist way to talk about it, but what a feminine ending is, it's an ending that ends on a soft syllable, not a hard one. So usually it's da 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 But on several lines here, you'll see da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So it ends softer. And one of the effects of that is it feels like the speech tumbles over into the next line. So you have a guy really spilling his guts here. And what does this all mean? He says, so, so here means like in the same way or similarly, oft it chances, often it happens that in particular men, that because of some vicious mole of nature in them, it sounds like an angry little animal, but actually vicious means something like evil. It's connected to that word vice. And mole can either mean sort of a black mark or a stain, or it can have something to actually do with the animal, which is to say it can dig. It's a kind of undermining quality that digs under all of their good qualities. Remember that over-under theme I'm going to be talking about a lot here? It's here too. That there's one quality, one evil quality, that undermines all their good. 
So what might one of those evil qualities be? Emma gives an example, as in their birth, for example, how they were born, wherein they're not guilty since nature cannot choose his origin. You can't choose how you're born or to whom you're born. So what's another example? By the or growth of some complexion. Complexion is a kind of a natural quality, and specifically it's something like a humor. And back in this time, they had a theory about the emotions and also a theory about the body in general, which was that you were sort of governed by these four bodily fluids that had to be kept in balance, what they called humors. And if anyone was too much, then it would throw everything else out of balance. So Hamlet's saying that maybe one of these humors, one of these substances, has become o'ergrown. And what does that do? It breaks down the pales and forts of reason. Pales are fences. It's short for palisades. And forts are fortifications. It's the things that keep reason guarded from invasion. Or what else? By some habit that too much or leavens. Or leavens is a wonderful word. It seems like there's too much yeast in it. It overinflates it or causes an excess of one particular habit. And in this case, they're plausive manners. Plausive means good or literally praiseworthy. So there's too much of an actual good thing here. So he's given a few examples of some of these tiny little things that corrupt an otherwise good thing. And he continues that these men carrying, I say, the stamp of one defect. Stamp here is just like the mark of this one defect being either nature's livery. So either the way you're sort of dressed by nature, livery is clothes or even more specifically a uniform either that or fortune star. So the way you're influenced by fate, because they believe that your sort of astrology controlled your fate. So either the way you were born or the way you're influenced by the stars, their virtues else, their virtues otherwise, or their other virtues, be they as pure as grace, even if they're as pure as godlike virtue itself, you know, even if they're as infinite as man may undergo, as infinite as any human could possibly possess, they will, in the general censure, take corruption from that particular fault. In the general censure means in the, in the sort of opinion or criticism of the masses. Take corruption means they'll be infected by that particular fault. So even something that's almost entirely perfect, that one fault is going to infect all the other good stuff. And he concludes with a sort of summing up. The dram of eel doth all the noble substance often doubt to his own scandal. There's actually a lot of different versions of this sentence. It's a famously difficult sentence. I'm using one from the second quarto. A dram is a tiny little bit. So a tiny little bit of evil. Eel is just a verse way of shortening it to one syllable. Doth all the noble substance, the whole body, basically, the whole virtuous body, often doubt. Doubt can mean sort of extinguish or drown. It's a shortening of do out, which is a way to say do away with. And to his own scandal means like to his own shame or disgrace. So it's kind of a restating of what he said in this previous paragraph. So who are these particular men that Hamlet's talking about? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about his father? Is he talking about his uncle, his mother? There's no way to tell. So there's this awesome sense that he's projecting this onto someone, perhaps himself. So all we have to do now is guess what it is exactly that the fatal flaw is that he's talking about in an otherwise good person. And by the way, Shakespeare has now pulled this trick on us a few times in a row which is that he got us all excited about the ghost maybe entering, and then he lulled us to sleep with a long, interesting, beautiful speech. And while we're sitting there listening to this thing well delivered, the ghost enters. It's a wonderful jump cut. Horatio yells, Look, my lord, it comes! And finally, the moment we've been waiting for, for like half an hour or 45 minutes, finally gets here, which is that Hamlet sees the ghost of his father. And he says, Angels and ministers of grace, defend us. So he calls on the angels, and ministers means messengers of grace. Remember that word grace we saw before, meaning sort of heavenly gifts or perfection? He brings it back now. Be thou a spirit of health, or goblin damned. Bring with thee airs from heaven, or blasts from hell. Be thy intents wicked or charitable. 
Thou comest in such a questionable shape that I will speak to thee. So after praying for them, he talks directly to it. He says, Be thou, whether you be a spirit of health, so a spirit of well-being, a good ghost, or goblin damned, a devil from hell, bring with thee, whether you bring with you airs from heaven, so beautiful air from heaven, or blasts from hell. Blasts are sort of like foul, disgusting breath. Be thy intents wicked or charitable. Whether your intents towards us are either wicked or charitable, not in the sense that he's giving charity to them, but kind or loving, good. You come in such a questionable shape, not questionable like strange, but questionable in the sense of inspiring us to ask questions because you look just like dad. So he's going to talk to him. I'll call thee Hamlet, king, father, royal Dane. Oh, answer me. So Royal Dane again means the king of Denmark. And maybe he tries these out one at a time. So first he calls him Hamlet, no answer. He calls him king. Maybe Hamlet's too informal, no answer. Father, as personal as possible, no answer. Royal Dane, the only other thing he can think of, no answer. And he begs him, oh, answer me. Let me not burst in ignorance, but tell why thy canonized bones, hearsed in death, have burst their cerements. So ignorance is not knowing why you're here. So the ghost can clear up that ignorance. Tell me why your canonized bones, canonized means they were consecrated by the sort of funeral rituals of the church, and they were hearsed in death, which is a beautiful way to put it. His bones, his remains were put in a coffin or hearsed when he died. So why have they burst their cerements? Cerements are the shroud or the winding sheet that you wrap a body in when it dies. And notice how he reuses that word burst. It's pretty unusual. We don't want to burst in ignorance of why your bones have burst their severaments. And he goes on to ask a variant on that same question. Why the sepulcher wherein we saw thee quietly inurned hath oped his ponderous and marble jaws to cast thee up again? So why did the sepulcher, the burial house or stone coffin, wherein we saw thee quietly inurned? Inurned literally means buried, but think about it as like being placed in an urn. And it was quiet because he was dead. So ponderous means heavy, literally heavy. So it was difficult. The sepulcher literally had to open its jaws. So imagine the lid of a coffin or of a stone sepulcher opening up like the jaws of an animal to cast thee up again. Cast thee up is literally vomit. So it's like the ghost is being vomited alive out of the grave where they saw him buried dead. Intense, right? What may this mean that thou, dead corse, again in complete steel, revisits thus the glimpses of the moon, making night hideous, and we fools of nature so hardly to shake our disposition with thoughts beyond the reaches of our souls? So corse just means corpse. Hell of a thing to call your dad. Again, in complete steel. Complete steel is full armor, because remember, he's dressed up as he was in battle. So what does this mean that you, dead body, are coming back in full armor? And listen to the way those heavy syllables hit mid-sentence, that thou dead course. They're both stressed single syllables, and they really land hard. So what does it mean that this body is revisiting the glimpses of the moon? Glimpses are the beams of the moon, or sort of the gleams of the moon. So you're coming back to visit them again. And what's the result of coming back? That he makes night hideous, and you make us fools of nature, which means foolish natural creatures, because remember, the ghost is an unnatural creature. So he's making these foolish natural animals so hardly to shake our disposition making us shake our composure, our sort of state of mind, with thoughts that are beyond the reaches of our souls, that are beyond the abilities of our souls to reach. This question of how something that was dead could come back to life. Say, why is this? Wherefore? What should we do? So after a pretty long speech with lots of fairly regular lines, you have these choppy things right at the end, these questions. 
Why is this? Wherefore? In other words, why? For what reason? What should we do about it? No answer. But Horatio says, it beckons you to go away with it as if it's some impartment to desire to you alone. So beckons is like gestures. It's pointing for you to come away with it as if it's some impartment to desire, as if it wanted some communication, some sort of alone time with you to tell something to you. So it had a piece of information to give to you and only you. And Marcellus is almost surprised. He says, look with what courteous action it waves you to a more removed ground. And courteous is like noble or gentle. So it's a very calm, placid motion. And it keeps waving him away to a more removed, a more sort of secluded or remote place, ground. But then he thinks about the implications of that. He says, but do not go with it. And Horatio jumps right on to finish that line. No, by no means. They're terrified about what's going to happen to Hamlet if he goes away with this ghost, because they don't know what the ghost is. Remember, it looks like Hamlet's father, but there's no guarantee that it is Hamlet's father. But by this time, Hamlet is determined. This is an incredible mystery he has to solve. He says, it will not speak, then will I follow it. And that line implies that he actually starts to go away with it. Horatio says, do not, my lord. So maybe this is a cue for him to grab him and say, stop, don't follow that impulse. But Hamlet snaps right back at him. Why? What should be the fear? Like, why shouldn't I go with him? I do not set my life at a pin's fee. And for my soul, what can it do to that, being a thing immortal as itself? He says, I don't value set my life at a pin's fee, at the cost of a single pin. Remember, he said that he wished he could dissolve in his monologue in Act 1, Scene 2. So this is clearly a guy who's willing to do almost anything. He doesn't care what happens to his life. And as for his soul, it's immortal. You can't kill his soul. There's always been this idea of the body and soul as separate things living together, that the body dies, but the soul lives on. You know, Hamlet's got a good argument here. It can't actually do anything to him if he doesn't care about whether he lives or dies. And he says to Horatio, it waves me forth again. It's waving me to go off that way again. And finally, he makes his decision. I'll follow it. But Horatio isn't letting it go that easy. What if it tempt you toward the flood, my lord? Or to the dreadful summit of the cliff that beetles o'er his base into the sea, and there assume some other horrible form which might deprive your sovereignty of reason and draw you into madness? So what if it tempts you to go away towards the flood? The flood is literally the sea. Or to the dreadful summit of the cliff. Dreadful isn't just scary. It means it inspires dread. It inspires fear. The cliff that beetles or his base into the sea. Hear those hard B sounds. It really makes the horror of that place hit. Beetles or means that it hangs over his base. So there's a kind of overhang at the top of the cliff into the sea. And what happens there? The ghost will take another shape. Assume means take on. So he takes another horrible form. He changes shape from Hamlet's father, which he used to get him out there, into a demon of some kind. And that might deprive your sovereignty of reason and draw you into madness. So your sovereignty could be a way he talks to him, like your majesty. Or what's maybe more likely, it's the sovereignty of reason itself. It's the way that reason rules over you. So the ghost might change to another form and take away all reason and draw him into madness, into insanity. And because that line ended short, there's that little tag on the end of it. Think of it. It's a very strong, simple thing to say to him. The very place puts toys of desperation, without more motive, into every brain that looks so many fathoms to the sea and hears it roar beneath. So without more motive, without even the presence of a ghost or demon of any kind, just that place, that cliff, puts toys of desperation, puts sort of desperate impulses into every brain that looks so many fathoms down. A fathom is a sea measurement. It's about six feet deep. So everyone, every brain that looks that far down to the sea and hears it roar underneath could go crazy, let alone when there's a ghost monster there. 
But the ghost is still gesturing. Hamlet says, it waves me still. And then Hamlet talks to it again. Go on. I'll follow thee. And finally, Marcellus, who's the military man, lays down the law. He says, you shall not go, my lord. Hamlet says, hold off your hands. Take your hands off me. Horatio says, no, be ruled. You shall not go. And look at all those lines. You shall not go, my lord. Hold off your hands. Be ruled. You shall not go. Every one of those is made up of monosyllables, single syllable words. Strong stresses. This is clearly a really heightened, really basic moment. Be ruled means be controlled, but ruled is so much stronger when you're talking to the next king of Denmark, you know? And Hamlet's reply to all these monosyllables is four more syllables, these incredibly powerful ones. He says, my fate cries out and makes each petty artery in this body as hardy as the Nemean lion's nerve. So that first line is this incredible blast. My fate, my destiny is crying out to me. He knows that if he goes to talk to this ghost, he's going to hear the solution to what he's been worrying about for months now. And this call of fate, what does it do? It makes each petty artery. Petty here isn't mean or nasty. It's the same word as petite. It means tiny or weak. And sometimes you'll see this spelled artier or another version of that. But it's every artery in his body is as hardy as the Nemean lion's nerve. The Nemean lion was this supposedly invulnerable and ferocious mythical lion. Um, It's one of the 12 labors of Hercules to kill it. So every tiny little artery in his body becomes as strong as the nerve of the sort of angriest animal ever. And all this time, the ghost is still beckoning to him, still trying to get him to come with him. Hamlet says, still am I called. It's still happening. Unhand me, gentlemen. By heaven, I'll make a ghost of him that lets me. I swear by heaven, I'll make a ghost of him. In other words, I'll kill him. I'll turn him into a dead ghost. And let's is always very confusing here. In production, you might even consider changing this word. Let's here doesn't mean lets me go. It means stops me or prevents me from going. Super confusing, right? But you know, words change in 400 years. By the way, this is often taken as a cue for Hamlet's to pull out a sword or a knife, something really threatening to them. Because otherwise, why would they unhand him? Just because they're nice to him? And he finishes them off with, I say away. And then he turns back to the ghost. Go on. I'll follow thee. And finally, after all this back and forth, Hamlet and the ghost go off to find their destiny together. And Horatio and Marcellus are not really pleased about this development at all. Horatio says, he waxes desperate with imagination. Waxes isn't like waxing your car. It means he grows or becomes more desperate with imagination, with delusions, with imagined things. Like maybe the delusion that the ghost is actually his father. And Marcellus says, okay, let's follow. Tis not fit thus to obey him. Let's follow after him. It actually isn't appropriate to obey him in this case. And Horatio agrees, have after. In other words, let's go after him. And, you know, this is awfully brave for nerdy little Horatio. And so he can't help but wonder, to what issue will this come? Issue isn't like matter of discussion here. It's outcome or result. What's going to happen from this? He's incredibly worried. And Marcellus has no idea what's going to happen any more than anyone else does. But his response is, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. And state is a wonderful word in that it has a lot of different potential meanings. Obviously, it can mean the place, you know, the state of Denmark, like the state of Delaware. But it can also mean the government of Denmark, like something's going weird with the ruling of this kingdom. Or it can also mean state in the existential sense. It can mean the sort of condition of Denmark. And that word rotten is incredibly powerful, too. It's that same sense we have of something rotting from the inside out. And they're just starting to see symptoms on the outside now. So it's a very, very famous line, but it's important to deliver this in a way such that you get the sense that these people don't know what's going on in their kingdom and something is disturbing them deeply because of these weird symptoms. And all Horatio can say is, heaven will direct it. 
you know, heaven will guide the direction of what happens with this, either Hamlet himself or the state of Denmark. But Marcellus, being a practical military guy, says, nay, let's follow him. So we can't just leave it up to heaven. We actually have a job here, too. And they run off to try to find Hamlet and the ghost and save him from what might happen. Now, before we go on to scene five of Act One, I just want to talk for two seconds about ghosts. Because we have an idea of ghosts based on our movies and culture, but they also had a very clear idea of ghosts in their plays particularly, but also in their religion. You know, one incredibly important thing to remember is that this is not too far into the Protestant faith. The Protestant Reformation is barely a hundred years before it. Not even this play is written. And why do we have Protestants? It's directly related to ghosts, because the Catholic Church was running what you might call a little bit of a racket, wherein you could buy your relative's way out of purgatory. Purgatory is where ghosts come from, historically, in the Catholic imagination. It's this place between heaven and hell that the church made up, where if you're not exactly evil enough to go to hell or good enough to go to heaven, you hang out there for a little while, and then the prayers of your loved ones can get you into heaven. So in the Catholic imagination, ghosts were dead relatives that came to you to ask for your help in getting them into heaven. And then the Catholic Church started selling what they called indulgences, which is a sort of get into heaven free card. You had to pray less or you had other people praying for you. So it was a way to pay the Catholic Church to get your dead relatives into heaven. As you can imagine, the Protestants were not happy about that. They protested and that's where the Protestant churches came from. So Catholics definitely believed in ghosts as these sort of fugitives from purgatory. But, importantly, they also thought that it was possible that they weren't just your relatives, they could also be sort of angels or demons masquerading as that person for some particular end. The important thing is that Protestants believed this was the only thing that ghosts could be. They could only be angels or devils, they couldn't be your relatives because they didn't believe in purgatory. And there were a few ghost rules. One is that ghosts usually appeared in places that were sort of associated with violence and death. Like, for example, castles battlements. They tended to be attracted to people who were in sort of unusual mental states. So people who were melancholy, sad, depressed, uh, people who were insane, uh, little children who were always in an interesting mental state. They also thought that if a ghost appeared at night or if it lived underground or if it encouraged you to do illegal things, it was almost certainly a devil and not an angel. And what we've seen in these earlier scenes and we'll definitely see in this next scene is that this ghost does all of those things, but it's also Hamlet's dad. And what's really interesting is that these are Catholic characters in front of a Protestant audience. So obviously these are medieval Danes, which means they're Catholics. So the idea of a ghost appearing is not totally out of the question, but it's a totally Protestant audience, which means that they would have thought this ghost could only have been an angel or a devil. And look, ghosts are all over revenge tragedies. You know, they almost always appear to the survivor to ask for their revenge. But I think the point of all this background is that it's a really complicated ghost. And Hamlet and the other characters and we, the audience, the readers, aren't meant to really know for sure what this ghost is. He could be an angel. He could be the devil. He could literally be the ghost of Hamlet's father coming back to ask for revenge. It is hilariously complicated. So with that in mind, let's hear what this ghost actually has to say. So we're here somewhere in another part of the battlements. And Hamlet finally stops the ghost and says, Whither wilt thou lead me? Speak, I'll go no further. So maybe actually what Horatio and Marcellus said to him in the last scene is starting to sink in a little bit. Maybe the ghost really is taking him somewhere to his death. Whither means to where. So where are you leading me? You're going to have to talk to me. I'm not going to go any further than this. And surprisingly, the ghost agrees with him and finally for the first time speaks. Mark me. Mark means to pay attention, to really listen. Hamlet says, I will. 
My hour is almost come when I to sulfurous and tormenting flames must render up myself. So suddenly there's a time pressure on this conversation. Remember that rooster crowing and him disappearing? So that's coming really quickly. So he says, my hour, my time has almost come when I have to render up myself, when I have to literally surrender myself up to sulfurous and tormenting flames. Sulfurous feels like hellish, literally smelling of sulfur. But fire was a big part of purgatory as well. The crimes had to be burnt away from you. And when Hamlet hears about the tormenting flames his father's going to have to go back to, he says, alas, poor ghost. Notice he doesn't call him father, he calls him ghost. But the ghost is having none of that. He says, pity me not, but lend thy serious hearing to what I shall unfold. He says, don't pity me. All I need you to do is listen now, and listen to those sounds, serious hearing. It has that kind of creaking door sound. So he wants him to listen to what I shall unfold, to what I'm going to reveal or tell to you. Hamlet says, speak, I am bound to hear. Bound means obligated, I have to listen to you. And the ghost's cue is that word bound. Not only are you bound to hear, he says, so art thou to revenge when thou shalt hear. When you hear, you'll also be bound to revenge me. And Hamlet says, what? This is the first he's hearing about this revenge thing. It's kind of a bomb dropped into the middle of the play. And after that very heavy setup, he has to tell him much more. He says, I am thy father's spirit, doomed for a certain term to walk the night, and for the day, confined to fast in fires, till the foul crimes done in my days of nature are burnt and purged away. So he confirms to him, yes, I am the ghost of your father. I've been doomed. I've been literally condemned or sentenced for a certain term, for a certain period of time to walk the night. So during the night, I walk around and for the day, confined to fast in fires. Confined literally means imprisoned. And fast doesn't mean not eat. It means like to do penance for your sins. And this is some of the most consciously poetic language in the play, almost. You hear those hard F sounds in the sentence, confined to fast in fires. It almost gives you the sense of the fire burning. And so how long does he have to do this thing where he burns all day and then walks as a ghost all night? Until the foul crimes done in my days of nature are burnt and purged away. His days of nature are his natural life. In other words, the time when he wasn't a ghost in purgatory. So he has to do this until the crimes he committed in his life are burnt and purged away. There's that word purge as in purgatory. So that should just take a few thousand years or so to burn off his crimes. And the ghost gets a little sidetracked by that idea for a second. He says, but that I am forbid to tell the secrets of my prison house. I could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul, freeze thy young blood, make thy two eyes like stars start from their spheres, thy knotted and combined locks to part, and each particular hair to stand on end like quills upon the fretful porcupine. He really gets carried away. He says, but that I am forbid, if it wasn't for the fact that I was forbidden to tell the secrets of my prison house. He talks about purgatory like a prison. But if it wasn't for that, I could tell you a tale. I could unfold. There's that word again. I could reveal or tell you a story whose lightest word, whose simplest detail would harrow up thy soul. Remember Horatio's line about it harrows me with fear and wonder? It's that same sense, that tool that digs up the soil. Your soul will literally be chopped up to pieces by this idea. It would freeze thy young blood. It would freeze your blood, your hot blood. It would make your two eyes like stars start from their spheres. So what's this deal with the spheres? Well, we have to go back to medieval astronomy. I know it's your favorite topic. The Earth was supposed to be at the center, and then all around it were these concentric crystal spheres with stars and planets stuck in them. When he says that it would make your eyes like stars start from their spheres, it's as though the stars were actually jumping out of their spheres with fear. So his eyes would actually pop right out of his head if he knew about this. What else would it do? It would make your knotted and combined locks to part. It would untangle your hair or unbraid your hair. 
and it would make each particular, each individual hair stand on end like quills upon the fretful porcupine. Fretful isn't worried, it's more like angry or irritated. So a porcupine, when it gets angry, all the quills go up. That's what would happen to his hair. Sometimes you'll see it spelled porpentine, which is an older version of porcupine, but that's the same idea. This, by the way, is probably the scariest use of a porcupine in literature. But he realizes he's gotten carried away by the horror of his situation. He says, but this eternal blazon must not be to ears of flesh and blood. A blazon is a revelation in this case, the story that he tells. But literally, it's a banner that a family carried with their coat of arms on it. It was the way you declared yourself to the world, essentially. And what's eternal about it? It's about eternity. It's about your immortal soul. So it must not be, it must not be given to or told to ears of flesh and blood, to human ears, because of the eyes jumping out of the head thing. So finally, he's going to get to the point of all this. List. List. Oh, list. So list, obviously, is just short for listen. But look at the way it accumulates. So first list, and then list, and then, oh, list. So really listen. And this line here is really where the action of the play starts. I know you've been listening to a play for about 45 minutes now, but really, here's where the action starts. If thou didst ever thy dear father love, if you ever loved your dear father, terrible thing to say to a kid, by the way, Hamlet can only say, oh, God, and the ghost finishes the sentence, revenge his foul and most unnatural murder. I mean, there might as well be a dun-dun-dun here, but so foul means ugly or disgusting or vile. And what's unnatural about this murder? Well, one thing is that it was not from natural causes. And the other thing, which we're going to find out in a second, is that it was performed by a family member, allegedly. By the way, you'll see murder spelled sometimes like murther. It's just a variant spelling pronunciation from the time. So Hamlet can only squeak out, murder? And the ghost says, murder, most foul, as in the best it is, but this, most foul, strange, and unnatural. So yeah, it's murder. It's disgusting, awful murder, as in the best. Even in the best case, murder is terrible. But this one is most foul. Yes, it's awful. Strange, unusual, and unnatural. Remember, in the previous line, he called it his foul and most unnatural murder. So he says, yeah, not only is it bad, but it's also super unnatural. So as you can imagine, Hamlet's pretty caught up in all this. He says, haste me to know it, that I with wings as swift as meditation or the thoughts of love may sweep to my revenge. So tell it to me as quickly as you can in order that I can sweep to my revenge. But what does he say? With wings as swift as meditation or the thoughts of love. Obviously, Hamlet is not a bird. He does not have wings. But it's a beautiful image for him sort of sweeping down on the object of revenge. And wings is swift, wings that are as fast as meditation, as thinking, or the thoughts of love. I've heard some people say that meditation and the thoughts of love are not actually that fast, so in some ways he's kind of soft playing it, but I think he means it to be really fast, almost instantaneous, the way your brain synapses fire. And sweep is an incredibly propulsive word. The ghost says, I find the apt. Apt means something like ready or able. So it's like, I believe that you're going to do this. And he says, and duller shouldst thou be than the fat weed that rots itself in ease on leafy wharf. Wouldst thou not stir in this? Duller doesn't mean more stupid. It means slower. You should be slower than the fat weed that rots itself in ease on leafy wharf. Ease means sort of like idleness or neglect or just kind of hanging out there. A wharf is a riverbank. And Lethe is a sort of mythological river in the underworld. The idea was that when you went to the underworld, they would dip you in this river and you would forget everything about your life on earth. So it's a river of forgetfulness. So as you can imagine, a weed that was growing on the bank would be forgetful and slothful and slow. So you should be slower than that. What's that not stir in this? If you wouldn't speed to do this thing I asked you to do. 
He says, now Hamlet, hear. And what else is there to hear? Well, who's he going to take this revenge on exactly? Details. Come on, guy. So he continues. "'Tis given out that, sleeping in my orchard, a serpent stung me." So it's given out, it's publicized or told to everyone that sleeping in my orchard, when I was asleep in my orchard, a serpent stung me. Stung is like bit, so he was bitten by a snake. That's the story they've been telling people. But no, that's wrong. So the whole ear of Denmark is by a forged process of my death, rankly abused. Obviously, Denmark doesn't only have one giant ear. It means every ear in Denmark, everyone who heard this story. A forged process is like a forged note a false account of my death. This story rankly abuses them. It completely or grossly deceives them, fools them. The story given out about his death was a lie, so what's the truth? But know, thou noble youth, the serpent that did sting thy father's life now wears his crown. Remember, sting means bite. So he says, yeah, there was a snake that killed me, and now it wears my crown. So he's implying that his brother Claudius is the one that murdered him. And Hamlet has a response to this that is a huge deal, and I don't think people make enough out of it. He says, oh, my prophetic soul, my uncle? Prophetic means it predicted it. His soul predicted that it was his uncle that did it. So somewhere deep in his soul, and maybe even in his mind, Hamlet thought, I know my uncle killed my father. It may be one of the reasons he hates him so much. Maybe he's never said it out loud, but it's incredible to see this thought actually occurring in Hamlet's mind before the ghost tells him it. So in some ways, this revelation is wish fulfillment. It almost makes you think, you know, maybe this is a devil that's trying to corrupt him by giving him exactly what he wants. So Hamlet's, my uncle, gives the ghost a prompt to tell the full story of what happened. The ghost says, I, that incestuous, that adulterate beast, with witchcraft of his wit, with traitorous gifts, O oh, wicked wit and gifts that have the power so to seduce, one to his shameful lust, the will of my most seeming virtuous queen. He says, yes, your uncle, that beast, that animal, that monster, he was incestuous. Why? Because he was sleeping with his sister-in-law. I've seen some people even suggest that the affair started before old Hamlet died, but that's interpretation all the way. Um, what's adulterate about him? He committed adultery. So with witchcraft of his wit, it's a wonderful phrase, as though he was casting spells with his wit, with his intelligence on her. With traitorous gifts. How were they traitorous? Well, he was traitorous to his brother with the gifts that he gave to his brother's wife. And then he has that brief interstitial there. Oh, wicked wit and gifts that have the power so to seduce. He's actually insulting the wit and the gifts that did the seduction, not just the brother. And look at all the W's in that line. With witchcraft of his wit, with traitorous gifts, a wicked wit and gifts. This is another part of that sort of really conscious poetry of this. Anyway, so this beast won to his shameful lust the will of my most seeming virtuous queen. So he won over the will, the liking, but it could also mean lust. There's something sexual about the word will of my most seeming virtuous queen. That's an incredibly insulting adjective. She seemed really virtuous, but she wasn't. And in just thinking about Gertrude and about his relationship with her, he sort of goes off on a little bit of a tangent. Oh, Hamlet... What a falling off was there from me, whose love was of that dignity that it went hand in hand, even with the vow I made to her in marriage, and to decline upon a wretch whose natural gifts were poor to those of mine. A falling off is like a defection or a mutiny. It's a military term. So she turned on him, whose love was of that dignity, not in the sense of dignified, but in the sense of worth a lot or had a lot of value. And we're really used to the phrase went hand in hand now, but think about what it actually means. His love walked hand in hand along with the vow that he made to her when they got married. So there was no separation between what he promised to do and what he actually did. 
and to decline upon a wretch whose natural gifts were poor to those of mine. Decline means to sort of sink down or lean down on. A wretch is a lowly or miserable person. He's calling his brother the worst. And his natural gifts, in other words, the gifts that nature gave him, his appearance, his intelligence, they were poor to those of mine. Compared to mine, they were nothing. So his criticism of her is that she turned away from him, the one with the real love, and gave her love to someone who was much worse than him. It's almost exactly like that comparison that Hamlet made between his father and his uncle in that monologue he had at the beginning of the play, that Hyperion versus a satyr thing. It just doesn't make any sense why she would love that guy instead of him. There's something really kind of Nixon-like about this guy, or this ghost, I should say, that constant fuming over the way he was wronged and working out his past failures and successes. And all he can come up with is, but virtue, as it never will be moved, the lewdness courted in the shape of heaven, so lust, though to a radiant angel linked, will sate itself in a celestial bed and prey on garbage. I've seen this comparison explained a few different ways. I'll just try and explain it the best way I can. So virtue itself, like the quality of virtue, will never be moved. It will never change, even if lewdness, the personification of sort of lusty, lascivious sexual behavior, courted in the shape of heaven. Court here means like pursue it or try to win it over. So no matter what lewdness does, even if it appears in a heavenly shape to virtue, virtue is never going to change its mind. So in that same way, lust, even though it's linked to a radiant angel, even though it's linked to Cupid, to love, isn't going to change. You know, it can sit in a heavenly, beautiful bed, sating itself, which means sort of satisfying itself or satiating itself with being there, and prey on garbage and eat garbage. I've heard this said to be like human remains or something, but garbage is fine. So just like you can't change virtue, you can't change lust. They are what they are. And maybe what he's saying is that Gertrude was just too lusty. In other words, she wanted Claudius just for the sex. But he's gotten off track thinking about Gertrude. He says, but soft, methinks I sent the morning air. Brief let me be. Soft can be something like wait or look, or in this case, smell. Methinks, it seems to me that I smell, I sent the morning air. Brief let me be. I mean, I have to be brief. I'm going to have to get this out quickly. He is, like Hamlet, prone to going on a little bit. So... Sleeping within my orchard, my custom always of the afternoon, upon my secure hour thy uncle stole, with juice of cursed hebena in a vial, and in the porches of my ears did pour the leprous distillment, whose effect holds such an enmity with blood of man, that swift as quicksilver it courses through the natural gates and alleys of the body, and with a sudden vigor it doth posset and curd, like eager droppings into milk, the thin and wholesome blood. So when he was sleeping in the orchard, which was his custom always of, in other words, during the afternoon, upon my secure hour. So it was secure because he wasn't ever worried about it. He wasn't worried someone was going to come in and assassinate him. There's probably not that many people who can actually get into his orchard. So your uncle snuck in. He stole in with juice of cursed hebena. Sometimes this is spelled hebenon. It's a kind of poisonous plant. And what's cursed about it is that it's poisonous. So it's in a vial. And in the porches of my ears... Porches isn't our modern sense of that place where you hang out in evenings. Porches means like portals or doors. So this is one of the openings to the body, the ears. Terrible way to kill someone, by the way. So he pours in the leprous distillment. What's leprous about it? It makes you appear like a leper. It makes your skin become scaly. Distillment is like an extract or any sort of like liquid that's distilled down. And its effect holds such an enmity with blood of man, such a hostility to human blood, that swift as quicksilver it courses through the natural gates and alleys of the body. Quicksilver is mercury, and if you've ever seen it like in a thermometer, it rushes in a very animal-like sort of way. And it's another comparison of the body to a castle or a house or even a city. It has gates and alleys. And when it enters, 
With a sudden vigor it doth posset and curd, like eager droppings into milk, the thin and wholesome blood. With a sudden vigor is like a sudden effectiveness or power. It doth posset. Posset means to clot, and curd means to curdle, like eager droppings into milk. Eager, remember from earlier in the previous scene, can mean sour or bitter. So it's like when you put vinegar or lemon juice into milk to make cheese, it makes the blood seize up into curds. Because normally the blood is thin and wholesome instead of thick, like it becomes. Wholesome just means healthy. And he says, so did it mine. That's what it did to my blood. And a most instant tetter barked about, most laser-like, with vile and loathsome crusts, all my smooth body. It's an incredibly tactile, poetic way he's talking about this poison. A tetter is a kind of scaling, and it barked about. It literally means crusted over. Think of the bark of a tree. So this scaling instantly crusted over, most laser-like. A laser is another word for a leper. Vile and loathsome, they're sort of both words for disgusting or awful or terrible. With a crust, all my smooth body. So where his body had been smooth, it became crusty. So instantly, his skin turns to crust and his blood curdles. It's a terrible poison. Don't kill anyone this way. In fact, don't kill anyone. That's just my advice. And this is really meant to horrify both the audience and Hamlet. And he concludes that section. Thus was I sleeping by a brother's hand of life, of crown, of queen, at once dispatched. And he really rubs it in here. So A, he's sleeping. It's by the hand of a brother. And what does he take from him? Dispatched means deprived of. He takes his life, he takes his crown, and he takes his queen. But wait, it actually gets worse somehow. I know you thought the leper skin and the cheese blood was bad, but wait for this one. Cut off even in the blossoms of my sin, unhouseled, disappointed, unannealed, no reckoning made, but sent to my account with all my imperfections on my head. So the actual reason he's in purgatory is because of this murder, because of its timing. He says, cut off, in other words, killed, even in the blossoms of my sin. That's an incredible image when you think about it. It's sin as a flower or as a garden. Blossom just means the height, sort of full flower of his sin. And then these three long, confusing words, Unhouseled. Unhouseled means he wasn't given the last communion, which is the way that Catholics purge their sins. Disappointed. It doesn't mean like, oh, that was such a disappointing death. No, it means unprepared, presumably by last rites. And unannealed. It means he wasn't anointed with holy water like a priest would. The whole point of last rites is to cleanse you as much as possible before your final journey, your death. Because if you die with all your sins, you might go directly to hell or to purgatory. He says, no reckoning made, but sent to my account. A reckoning is literally a sort of final settling up of accounts, like you would at the end of a month for a business. He was sent to his account. In other words, he was sent to his judgment, his final judging, with all my imperfections on my head. Everything he had ever done, all of his sins are still on his head. They're not cleaned off. And for his son, Hamlet, who's listening, this is almost the worst of all. Remember that Hamlet is a pretty religious guy, and he knows that what this means is that he suffered because of when he was killed. He says, oh, horrible. Oh, horrible, most horrible. And the ghost sees how much he's suffering from hearing the story. He says, well, if thou hast nature in thee, bear it not. In other words, if you have the natural feeling of a son for his father's suffering, don't put up with this. Let not the royal bed of Denmark be a couch for luxury and damned incest. A couch can be a regular bed or couch, but what it means here is a hiding place. So luxury, in this case, doesn't mean like a really nice gold couch. It means lechery or lust. It's a hiding place for lust and incest. He knows that Hamlet loves him, and he knows that Hamlet loves the country of Denmark, and so he sort of hits both of those at once. And then he gives this weird little caveat. He says, 
But howsoever thou pursuest this act, taint not thy mind, nor let thy soul contrive against thy mother aught. In other words, however you pursue this act, this act of revenge, taint not thy mind. Don't stain your mind, or let your soul contrive, conspire, or plot anything, aught, against your mother. And after his criticism of her, that's pretty hard to take, especially considering how mad Hamlet must be at her now, knowing what he knows. And notice the ghost says, neither your mind nor your soul should be angry at her, or God forbid, do anything towards her. The ghost says, leave her to heaven, and to those thorns that in her bosom lodge to prick and sting her. So in other words, let God judge her. And even more than that, let her own guilt work on her. But the image is beautiful. Those thorns that in her bosom lodge. Bosom here means something like heart. So she's got thorns that stick in her heart to prick and sting her. Sting, again, remember from the snake, it means to bite. So let her be troubled in her heart by what she did. So after leaving Hamlet with that helpful but ultimately useless piece of advice, he says, fare thee well at once. Goodbye, I have to go right now. And then he has this beautiful piece of poetry to send him off. The glowworm shows the matin to be near and begins to pale his uneffectual fire. The glowworm is a beetle that glows at night, maybe something sort of like our firefly. Matin means morning. It's literally the morning prayer service first thing when the sun rises. So you know from this insect that it's almost morning time. How do you know? Because he begins, he begins to pale his uneffectual fire. He begins to dim his light, which actually isn't that bright anyway. That's why it's uneffectual. I think this language is a way for Shakespeare to slow down the scene after a scene that's pretty fiery and has a lot of information in it and a lot of anger in it. And he just sort of slows it down for this very tender moment. So he needs that little poetic line in there as a kind of transition to the last line. Adieu. 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 Remember me. So adieu, obviously, is the French word for goodbye. And you'll see it fairly often in Shakespeare and some of the other plays of this time. It's a slightly more heightened way to say goodbye. And then this two-word kicker, remember me. It's almost like his curse for Hamlet, because he's given him this incredible responsibility and said, remember me, bye. And Hamlet is left alone on stage. The ghost has disappeared with the morning sun. And he has a little sort of mini monologue here. Oh, all you host of heaven, oh earth, what else? And shall I couple hell? So the host literally means the armies, but all the angels of heaven essentially is what that means. And also all the armies of earth. And oh, what else? Maybe I should couple hell. Maybe I should add on hell. So he's calling out for help to everything in all of the realms. He says, hold, hold my heart. Almost as though he's calling on his heart to hold together and not burst apart. And then he starts calling to the rest of his body. And you, my sinews, grow not instant old, but bear me stiffly up. Sinews are tendons next to your muscles. Grow not instant old. Don't become instantly elderly. In other words, as weak as the tendons of an old man. But bear me stiffly up. Hold me up stiffly. In that way that when you're exhausted, it's just the tendons holding you up, not even the muscles. And Hamlet remembers the ghost's last words. Remember thee? Ay, thou poor ghost. While memory holds a seat in this distracted globe. It remember you? Yes, you poor ghost. While memory holds a seat, in other words, while it has residence in this distracted globe. Distracted can mean agitated or even crazy. And the globe is a nice word because it has so many meanings to it. It can be literally the sphere of his head. It can be the earth itself. It can even be the globe theater in which the actor is probably saying these words. So I'll remember you, ghost, as long as memory itself has residence in my head. Or residence on the earth, for that matter. Remember thee, 
Yea, from the table of my memory, I'll wipe away all trivial fond records, all saws of books, all forms, all pressures past that youth and observation copied there, and thy commandment all alone shall live within the book and volume of my brain, unmixed with baser matter. Yes, by heaven. So let's go back. Yea, yes, from the table. A table's like a writing tablet, almost like a little chalkboard. And so what's written on that tablet right now? All trivial fond records. All unimportant fond here means something like foolish. Everything that's been recorded there. All saws of books. Saws are like sayings or maxims that he got from a book. All forms, all pressures past. In other words, all sort of shapes and impressions that have ever been written there, that youth and observation copied there, that observation in this case means something like just paying attention or watching over the years have copied onto it. So he's going to erase all of those. He's going to wipe the slate clean. And thy commandment all alone shall live within the book and volume of my brain. Your commandment, in other words, your commandment to remember you, but also to revenge, is going to live alone inside the book and volume. Volume can mean space, but it can also mean you know a volume of a book. So his brain is going to be empty except for the ghost's commandment. And it's going to be unmixed with baser matter. It's not going to be mixed with less important or less valuable material. Yes, by heaven. In other words, yes, I swear by heaven that I'm going to do that. And as soon as he's finished remembering what the ghost told him to do, he remembers it. And he says, oh, most pernicious woman. So, so much for that commandment not to taint his mind with her. The first thing he thinks of, even before Claudius, is his mother. Pernicious here means destructive, as though what she did is what got him killed. And then finally he turns to Claudius. Oh, villain. Villain. Smiling, damned villain. There's that refrain of villain. And the wonderful word in there is smiling. It's almost like a character note for the actor playing Claudius. You're a smiler. This is exactly who Hamlet despises, the people who are all outward appearance, smiling outward appearance when they actually have murder in their hearts. And he says, My tables, meet it as I set it down that one may smile and smile and be a villain. And after we just got through with the tablet of his brain, there's another tablet, which is sort of his personal one, what he writes things down in to remember them. Maybe his moleskin, if you'll pardon the expression. He says, meet it is, I set it down. It's appropriate or fitting that I write down that one may smile and smile and be a villain. So it's important for him to remember that villains smile. And he's got a little bit of snark after that. At least I'm sure it may be so in Denmark. And in some productions, he actually takes out a notebook of some kind and writes this down. And maybe he finishes that writing down and says, so uncle, there you are. As though he's seeing his uncle for the first time, as he is. The smiles peeled away, all that excess is peeled away, and he can just see him to be a villain, which is what he always suspected him to be. And he concludes, Now to my word, it is adieu, adieu, remember me. I have sworn it. His word is something like his motto, the thing he's going to remember forever and ever. His word is adieu, adieu, remember me. Maybe he even writes that down. He's sworn that he's going to remember his father. Has he sworn he's going to revenge? That's another matter entirely. But Hamlet is sort of exhausted on the stage after this. And right on cue, you hear Horatio offstage. My lord! My lord! And then Marcellus. Lord Hamlet! They're obviously still looking for him. They're calling for him. Horatio says to himself, heaven secure him. In other words, heaven protect him or keep him safe. And Hamlet hears that and doesn't respond to them. He says, so be it. Like, I hope heaven keeps me safe. I'm going to need it. And then Marcellus calls one more time. Lo, ho, ho, my lord! So what's this weird Santa-like thing he says? It's literally the call that falconers make to get their birds to come back. If you've ever seen this done, it's a very old tradition, but they still do it today. You use hawks or falcons to hunt, and then when they catch something, you call them back. So this is the hawk call. Otherwise, they'll just sit in a tree and eat the squirrel they've caught. 
And Hamlet is finally ready to talk to them. He says, Lo, ho, ho, boy, come, bird, come. So he's giving back that same weird greeting. And finally they see him, they chase him down. And Marcella says, how is my noble lord? Horatio says, what news, my lord? They're probably amazed to find him alive and not being eaten by some demon on the waterside. And all Hamlet says is, oh, wonderful, which is an extremely ambiguous answer. It could mean great news. It could also mean I've seen something full of wonder. And Horatio says, good, my lord, tell it. Tell us what happened. And Hamlet says, no, you will reveal it. But Horatio swears, not I, my lord, by heaven, Marcellus, nor I, my lord. So they both swear by heaven that they're not going to reveal his secret. I think Hamlet has realized that he has kind of a bomb here. This could break up the country, and he has to keep this very close to the vest. He doesn't know who to trust. He doesn't trust most people. Can he even trust his best friend, Horatio? Hamlet says, how say you then? Would heart of man once think it? It's a little confusing because hearts don't do a lot of thinking. It's a weird mixed metaphor. You'll see in the second half of this scene that there are little bits of madness creeping in. And we're going to talk much more about this when Hamlet's madness plot starts to kick in. But it's possible that he's hatched it already and things are starting to develop. Once here doesn't mean just one time. It means ever. So could you ever think of this? So what is he referring to? Maybe he's referring to the murder. Maybe he's referring to just the ghost appearing. And he comes back to them and says, but you'll be secret? Like, are you sure you'll keep my secret? And they say, I, by heaven, my lord. In other words, we swear by heaven, which is the strongest thing you can swear by. So finally, Hamlet is ready to share his secret. There's ne'er a villain dwelling in all Denmark, but he's an errant knave. In other words, there's no villain living anywhere in Denmark who isn't an absolute scoundrel. And what's so smart about this moment is that Shakespeare knows that our stomachs are still in knots from this ghost visitation. And he lands a pretty great joke. Horatio says... There needs no ghost, my lord, come from the grave to tell us this. Like, yeah, we didn't need the supernatural demonstration. We we knew that villains were scoundrels, yeah. And Hamlet says, why, right, you are in the right. And so without more circumstance at all, I hold it fit that we shake hands in part. You as your business and desires shall point you, for every man hath business and desire, such as it is. And for my own poor part, look you, I'll go pray. And here the craziness really starts to multiply. Without more circumstance at all means without any other explanation or elaboration of the circumstances. I hold it fit. I think it's appropriate that we shake hands and part. We go our separate ways. You should go wherever your business and desires, what you want, shall point you. For every man hath business and desire, such as it is. And for my own poor part, in other words, as for me, poor me, look you as a little fragment like, look, or see, I'll just go pray. Notice how he uses part in a different sense, four lines apart. You know, we should shake hands and part, in other words, separate. And for my own part, as for me, so it's a nice little confusion of words there, which is essentially what he's trying to do. And Horatio tries to bring him back to earth. He says, these are but wild and whirling words, my lord. And listen to those strong W sounds, wild and whirling words. It gives you a sense of the craziness of his language without even spelling it out. Wild and whirling words. Whirling here could mean stirred up or excited in addition to just spinning around. And Hamlet says, I'm sorry they offend you heartily. Yes, faith, heartily. Heartily means sort of with all my heart. And faith means, yeah, I swear by my faith. And this really confuses Horatio. He says, there's no offense, my lord. And Hamlet pounces on that. He says, yes, by St. Patrick, but there is Horatio and much offense too. This is the one time where you see him getting out of that sort of canny, borderline hyperactive state and talking about the offense that's happened. St. Patrick, by the way, is supposedly the saint that's sort of most closely associated with purgatory. So it's a nice little hint at what he's been talking about. And what's the offense? It's the offense done to his father, but he's not going to say that out loud. He goes on, touching this vision here, it is an honest ghost, that let me tell you. So touching doesn't mean physical touching, it means 
concerning or having to do with this vision here. As for this vision, it is an honest ghost. Well, how does he know that? He just trusts it. It's his father's ghost. For your desire to know what is between us, or master it as you may. As for your wish to know what was said between us, basically, or master it, control it, overcome it as much as you can. Good luck telling them that. And he says, and now, good friends, as you are friends, scholars, and soldiers, give me one poor request. So he's calling on their most sort of noble natures to ask one poor request, one sort of simple or humble request. And they're happy to do it. Horatio says, what is my lord? We will. Hamlet says, never make known what you have seen tonight. And they say, my lord, we will not. Hamlet says, nay, but swear it. And Horatio is perfectly ready to do that. He says, in faith. In other words, I swear by my faith that I won't, that I won't reveal what I've seen. And Marcellus is the same. Nor I, my lord, in faith. But faith isn't enough for them. He says, upon my sword. Marcellus is kind of taken aback. He says, we have sworn, my lord, already. But Hamlet isn't having it. He says, indeed, upon my sword, indeed. And indeed here could mean something like seriously or for real. And then an unexpected party pipes in. You hear the ghost say, swear. And he's off stage. In the original, he probably would have actually been under the stage. So it would have been like you could hear his voice coming up from purgatory under the earth. And Hamlet is as surprised as anyone. He says, aha, boy, say so, so. Boy is a sort of funny way to talk about your ghost father. But he says, you say so too? Art thou there, True Penny? Or in other words, are you under there? And True Penny is a sort of nickname for an honest person. A True Penny is literally a penny that's made out of what it's supposed to be made out of. And he turns back to the guys. Come on, you hear this fellow in the cellarage? The cellarage is literally the place underneath, but it's a sort of jokey way to refer to the underworld. And he uses that ghost's voice to prompt them on. Consent to swear, he says. And Horatio is probably shaking in his boots at this point, says, propose the oath, my lord. And Hamlet proposes it. Never to speak of this that you have seen. Swear by my sword. And the ghost says again, swear. And then Hamlet says a strange Latin phrase. He says, hic et ubique, which literally translates as here and everywhere. You know the word ubiquitous that means all over the place? That's the same as ubique. So it sounds like his voice is coming from everywhere. So Hamlet says, then we'll shift our ground. In other words, we'll shift our location somewhere else. Come hither, gentlemen. Come over here, guys, and lay your hands upon my sword. Laying hands on it is how you swear by it. So he says, never to speak of this that you have heard, swear by my sword. And notice how he changes it from never to speak of this that you have seen to never to speak of this that you have heard. Maybe it's just the fact they've heard the ghost under the stage. And the ghost has one more line, swear by his sword. And Hamlet's a little irreverent again. He says, well said, old mole. And think about the animal. It's like a burrowing animal that lives underground. So he's calling his father's ghost a mole. Can work in the earth so fast? In other words, can you work your way into the earth so quickly or through the earth? A worthy pioneer. A pioneer is a miner, especially someone who sort of digs under an enemy to lay mines. So the ghost is here too. So they have to go somewhere else. He says, once more remove, good friends. Remove means move over to another place. So they're kind of rushing around the stage with the ghost's voice coming from everywhere probably terrified out of their minds. And Horatio expresses that. He says, Oh, day and night, but this is wondrous strange. Remember how Hamlet called it wonderful? It's that same sense of like amazing, amazingly strange. And Hamlet takes that word strange as a cue. And he says, And therefore, as a stranger, give it welcome. And because it's strange, just as you would welcome a stranger into your town or into your home, you should welcome this strange thing into the world. And then we get another famous line, which actually means something different than everybody thinks it does. He says, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Philosophy isn't like Kant or Hegel or any of those guys. Philosophy is science. It's what they used to call natural philosophy. So maybe Horatio is a science major. I don't know. But there are actually more things going on both in heaven and the earth, which is where this ghost is living right now under the earth, than he can dream of in his science explanations. And finally, we have one more time to swear. He says, 
But come, here as before, never, so help you mercy, how strange or odd soe'er I bear myself, as I perchance hereafter shall think meet to put an antic disposition on, that you, at such time seeing me, never shall, with arms encumbered thus, or this headshake, or by pronouncing of some doubtful phrase as, well, well, we know, or we could, and if we would, or if we list to speak, or there be, and if they might, or such ambiguous giving out, to note that you know aught of me, this not to do, so grace and mercy at your most need help you, swear. So this is very long and convoluted and sort of deliberately crazy in some ways, but let's go through it word by word. So here as before, on my sword again, just as we did before, never, so help you mercy, may mercy help you, if you break this, how strange or odd soe'er, like no matter how strangely or oddly I bear myself, in other words, how strangely or how oddly I act, and then this parenthetical, as I perchance, since I might, hereafter, from now on, think meet, decide that it's appropriate or fit, to put an antic disposition on. This is an incredibly important phrase in the play. An antic, antic means bizarre or strange, and disposition is like a temperament. So he's saying, if I start acting crazy, then you, at such time seeing me, so when you see me, never shall, with arms encumbered thus, with folded arms like this, so it indicates that he's actually acting it out, or this head shake, or the kind of like side-to-side poor guy head shake, or by pronouncing of some doubtful phrase, or by saying some sort of ambiguous or difficult to understand kind of phrase. So what he's talking about is them. So if they see him doing this, they shouldn't act like that and get all mysterious and say things like, well, well, we know, or, you know, we could, and if we would, in other words, we could, if we would tell you what's wrong with him, or if we list to speak, if we wished to speak about what's bothering him, we could tell you, or there be, and if they might, In other words, there is, if they might, dot, 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 or such ambiguous giving out. Giving out is just some kind of pronouncement or saying. To note, to show or imply that you know aught of me, that you know anything about why I'm doing this. So it's going to be very tempting when he acts strangely for them to hint that they know the answer. And he concludes the oath, this not to do, so grace and mercy at your most need help you. Remember he said, so mercy help you at the beginning of this. So what they're swearing by is that at their moment of greatest need, grace and mercy shouldn't help them. And he finishes, swear. And there's that ghost again, swear. And they all swear. And finally, Hamlet says, rest, rest, perturbed spirit. Perturbed is from a Latin word that means sort of completely worked up or agitated. So this ghost has gotten incredibly worked up and Hamlet tells him to rest. So gentlemen, with all my love, I do commend me to you. Commend me to you is sort of like, I give you my regards. It's a very sweet line after a very worked up section. And what so poor a man as Hamlet is may do to express his love and friending to you, God willing, shall not lack. Now, obviously, Hamlet isn't actually poor. He's the richest guy in town, but he's figuratively poor. So whatever someone is sort of spiritually poor as me can do to express his love and his friendship to you, I hope to God it will not lack. And after these events, with the sun coming up, he says, let us go in together and steal your fingers on your lips, I pray. And think of that gesture, the finger on the lips, it means to be silent, right? To be quiet. He's obsessed with them not revealing this secret. And then he has a rhyming couplet to end the scene. We've seen this a few times now. There's that sort of two rhyming lines that buttons the scene, but it's an incredibly momentous one. It's going to rocket us through the rest of this play. He says, the time is out of joint. Time isn't like five o'clock in the morning. It's like the era, the time in which we're living, is out of joint. We saw Claudius, he actually used the same image in his scene. He talks about the state being disjoint and out of frame. It's out of joint in the sense of a dislocated or broken bone or a piece of furniture where the joinings have been pulled apart. Something is broken. And then Hamlet says, 
O cursed spite that ever I was born to set it right. Spite is like malice. And when you think about this image of a dislocated or broken bone or a broken piece of furniture, then set it right is like setting a bone or regluing a piece of furniture. Almost like he has to be the doctor that's going to heal this. And just look at that phrase he uses. Oh, cursed spite. An awful thing has happened to him. Hamlet has to fix the world. You would think that he would be happy that his suspicions had been confirmed about his uncle. That actually, now that he knew what was wrong with the world, he could fix it. But this is really one of the first times we see Hamlet express real worry. That the ghost's command to revenge isn't a good thing, it's a curse on him. This is going to be obviously real, real important in the rest of the play. And while he was doing his rhyming couple, the guys have started to head off, and Hamlet says, Nick, come, let's go together, which is a nice kind of propel them off stage line. So finally, at the end of Act 1, we really have all the elements of the plot set up. We know who everyone is, we know what the situation is, and we know what Hamlet's mission is. And obviously, acts and scenes are not original to the play. They were added in later. But you'll see as we start Act 2, there's a sense of, okay, that's set. Now, how does the plot go on from here? So we'll start on on Act 2, Scene 1. And we're back to Polonius's place. And we see Polonius with a new character, a fairly minor character named Rinaldo. He says, give him this money and these notes, Rinaldo. Reynaldo says, I will, my lord, which leads you to believe that Reynaldo is a servant and that Polonius is sending him off to give someone money and notes. On a totally personal note, 20 years ago, the way I first read Hamlet is because I was cast in a production of it when I was, I think, a sophomore in high school. And this is the tiny little part they gave me, Reynaldo. I was good. I got all my my lords right. The Polonius kind of randomly was B.J. Novak, who's gone on to become a writer and actor, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, this scene could be over after he says, I will, my lord. So he does his job, and then he heads off, and then next part of the scene. But actually, Polonius calls him back. Remember that scene where he had a lot of advice for his son? And whenever it seemed like he was done, there was another piece? This is a quality we're going to come to recognize in Polonius, which is running his mouth. So just when Reynaldo thinks the scene is over, Polonius says, You shall do marvels wisely, good Reynaldo, before you visit him to make inquire of his behavior. So marvels here is sort of for marvelous. In other words, extremely wisely. It would be very wise of you, Reynaldo before you even visit him, to sort of inquire into his behavior. And Reynaldo says, my lord, I did intend it. Yeah, like, I, I've worked for you before. I know how this works. And Polonius says, Mary, well said, very well said. Mary, again, is short for, I swear by Mary. But it's a nice kind of way with well said to belittle him and say, yeah, I'm sure you did, but I'm going to tell you how to do it anyway. He says, look you, sir. Sort of like, make sure, sir. Inquire me first what danskers are in Paris. And how? And who? What means? And where they keep? What company? At what expense? So inquire me means sort of find out for me first what danskers, what Danish people are in Paris. Oh, Paris. Who do we know who's going to Paris? It's Laertes. So that's who he's talking about. He's sending the notes and the money to Laertes. And the how here means sort of how do they live? You know, who they are? What means? In other words, what resources do they use to support themselves? Where do they keep? Where do they sort of hang out? Or where do they live? What company? Like who are they hanging around with? At what expense? At what cost? So in other words, just start talking to people about the Danes that are hanging out in Paris and just ask for little bits of information about them. And he goes on. And finding by this encompassment and drift of question that they do know my son, come you more nearer than your particular demands will touch it. So when you find out by this encompassment, encompassment literally means surrounding, as though you're surrounding Laertes with all the details of his case, but you're never actually getting to meet him. And the drift of question is the sort of directing that you do of the question towards him. So you find out by all these oblique questions that they do know my son? Then come you more nearer than your particular demands will touch it. In other words, you can get closer to the real facts and the real story about him than asking sort of direct particular questions about him would let you. Take you as twere some distant knowledge of him, as thus, 
I know his father and his friends, and in part him. So this is kind of an elaboration of that scheme that he set up. So you can take like a sort of distant knowledge of him. Yeah, I mean, I know his father, I know his friends, and a little bit, in part him. And then I think Polonius senses that maybe Reynaldo's drifted off a little. He says, do you mark this, Reynaldo? In other words, are you paying attention to this, Reynaldo? Reynaldo says, I very well, my lord. And Polonius continues, and in part him, but you may say, not well. Like, yeah, you can say, yeah, I know him a little bit, but not very well. But if it be he, I mean, he's very wild, addicted so-and-so. So in other words, if he's the one we're talking about, I've heard that he's really wild and devoted. It may be more in the sense of love. Addicted didn't mean addicted to drugs back then. It meant just very devoted. So you can put that in there. And then, and there put on him what forgeries you please. In other words, you can attribute these sort of falsehoods to him. These sort of light lies. Mary, none so rank as may dishonor him. Nothing so offensive or odious as is going to dishonor him. Take heed of that. Make sure of that. But, sir, such wanton, wild, and usual slips as our companions noted and most known to youth and liberty. Wanton is sort of like libertine. It's that sense of being sort of a little too free. Usual slips are kind of like the common failures. And these are the usual things that are noted companions. Noted here in the sense of notorious companions in that they go along with. And they're most known to youth and liberty. It's another one of those Hendiades things we talked about earlier. It really means something like youthful liberty, youthful sort of overly free behavior. So most young free people do something like that. And Reynaldo has a suggestion for one of those usual slips. He says, as gaming, my lord? In other words, like gambling? And Polonius likes it. Aye, or drinking, fencing, swearing, quarreling, drabbing. You may go so far. He says, yes, you know, gambling, sure, but also drinking, fencing. Fencing at the time, it happened in these sort of fencing academies, and they were sort of known as the places where the bad kids hang out. So it wasn't this very upper class thing. It was like where the guys went to fight. So another one is swearing. Another one is quarreling, which isn't arguing or fighting in that sense. It's more like battles of wit to see who was smarter. And then the last one, drabbing, which means consorting with prostitutes, which seems pretty far out. And Polonius says, you may go so far. You can say all those things. And Reynaldo's a little taken aback by that last one. He says, my Lord, that would dishonor him. So if I start spreading that word around, people are going to think he's hanging out with prostitutes. And Polonius says, faith, no as you may season it in the charge. He says, oh, I swear by my faith. No, you may season it, which means to sort of like soften it or moderate it in the charge, in the accusation. So the way you say it is going to make it not seem quite so bad. He says, you must not put another scandal on him that he is open to incontinency. That's not my meaning. In other words, you shouldn't shame him by saying that he's open to this sort of like extreme sexual lewdness, incontinency. That's not what I'm talking about. But breathe his faults so quaintly that they may seem the taints of liberty, the flash and outbreak of a fiery mind, a savageness in unreclaimed blood of general assault. Breathe here means speak. You can speak about his faults so quaintly. And now quaintly for us means something like out of date. But in this time it meant artfully or beautifully. So you're going to talk about them so nicely that they might just seem the taints of liberty, the faults of having a little too much freedom. The flash and outbreak of a fiery mind. Fiery in the sense of overheated, like worked up. And so what comes out of it are these sort of flashes or breakings out. A savageness, a wildness in unreclaimed blood, in sort of uncorrected or undisciplined blood, spirit, or nature. When he says it's of general assault, he means that it attacks all young men. Like everybody of this age does something like that. And Reynaldo is still a little confused by this. He says, but my good Lord. And Polonius is way ahead of him. He says, wherefore should you do this? Like, I bet you want to know why you should do this. And Reynaldo says, I, my Lord, I would know that. Yeah, I, I do want to know that. So Polonius explains, he says, Mary, sir, here's my drift, and I believe it is a fetch of warrant. 
So the drift here is literally like what I'm driving at. Here's what I'm going for. And by the way, I believe it's a, a fetch, which is like a plot or a stratagem of warrant means that it's justified, it's warranted. You laying these slight sullies on my son as twere a thing a little soiled in the working, mark you, your party in converse, him you would sound, having ever seen in the prenominate crimes the youth you breathe of guilty, be assured he closes with you in this consequence. Good sir, or so, or friend, or gentleman, according to the phrase or the addition of man and country. So watch how flowery his language gets here. He's really loving to hear himself talk. So when you lay these slight sullies on my son, so when you accuse my son of these slight sort of sins or stains, as if it were, as twere, a thing a little soiled in the working, something that's gotten a little dirty through use, you know, like a shirt that you've worn a little too much, he says to Reynaldo, mark you, pay attention, your party in converse, in other words, the other person you're having this conversation with, him you would sound, the person you want to probe or ask for information. Having ever seen, in other words, if this person you're talking to has ever seen the youth in the prenominate crimes, in the crimes that were previously stated, that's what prenominate means. So if the youth you breathe of guilty, the, the young man you speak of as being guilty, be assured he closes with you in this consequence. Be sure that he's going to respond to you with this kind of next phrase in the sense of the next one in the sequence. Good sir, or so, which means, or something like that, or friend, or gentleman, according to the phrase or the addition of man and country, according to the usual phrasing or the title or form of address is what addition means, of man and country means particular to that one person or the place you're in. Reynaldo, of course, is writing this all down. He says, very good, my lord. Polonius says, and then, sir, does he this? He does, and sometimes you'll see a substituted for he. So does he this means he does this. And then Polonius promptly loses his train of thought. He says, what was I about to say? By the mass, I was about to say something. Where did I leave? So he swears by the mass, the holy mass. I was about to say something. Where did I leave? Where did I stop talking? And Reynaldo remembers it perfectly or is written down. He says, at closes in the consequence at friend or so and gentleman. So he just reads back to him the phrases he's been saying. Polonius remembers, at closes in the consequence. I marry. He closes thus. In other words, he responds this way. I know the gentleman. I saw him yesterday, or the other day, or then, or then, with such or such. And as you say, there was he gaming. There, or took in his rouse. There, falling out at tennis. Or perchance, I saw him enter such a house of sale, videlicet, a brothel, or so forth. So the other guy in the conversation says, oh yeah, I know that guy. I saw him yesterday, or the other day. So he's just going on with all the things he could say. With such or such, you know, in other words, with that person, or that person. And as you say, just like you say, he was gambling there or took in his rouse. That means he was overcome with his carousing, with his drinking. They are falling out at tennis. He was arguing over a game of tennis. The tennis courts, by the way, was another place for the rowdies to hang out. We think of it as another very upper class activity, but actually it was where the bad kids hang out. And then he really gets to the good stuff or perchance, or maybe I saw him enter such a house of sale. You could almost put quotation marks around house of sale, air quotes, a place where things are sold, if you know what I mean. Videlicet is a Latin phrase, which literally means it's clear to see, but it's usually used to mean, in other words, or that is to say, if you ever see the abbreviation V-I-Z, usually in an academic paper, that's what that's short for. I don't know where the Z comes from, by the way. So in other words, a brothel, or so forth, something like that. And then Polonius wraps it all up, his genius. See you now. Your bait of falsehood takes this carp of truth. I'm sure he thinks this is a genius image. It's actually pretty stupid. In other words, the baited hook of a lie that you set out takes, catches, a carp of truth. So you did a few lies, but in doing that, you caught the truth. I'm just very amused by a carp of truth. 
There's an old Irish myth about a salmon of knowledge, and I kind of imagine that they hang out together, the salmon of knowledge and the carp of truth. Anyway, and thus do we of wisdom and of reach with windlasses and with assays of bias by indirections find directions out. So we of wisdom and of reach, those of us who possess wisdom and reach, in other words, intellectual reach, the ability to sort of grasp things. How do we catch this carp of truth? With windlasses and with assays of bias. A windlass is a cranking device that lets a single person lift a heavy weight. It may just be a shorthand way to refer to a complex machine, or it could be a way in which he's using all of his little machines to catch what he wants. And with assays of bias, assays are attempts, literally they're throws, because bias is a term in a game. It's a game called bowls. The closest analogy I can give you is probably bocce, the Italian game. It's a game where you throw a ball across a lawn in an attempt to get it as close to a target as possible. And a bias is a weight inside the ball that makes it take a curved path to its target. So assays of bias, you could almost call them curveballs, if we want to get all American about it. Or I don't know, British folks, I've heard the term googly thrown about, but I just wanted to say the word googly. But in other words, it's something that gets to a target through an out-of-the-way journey. So with those things, by indirections, we find directions out. By indirect methods, we find the direction that things are actually going in. It's a nice little pun on direction. So by my former lecture and advice, shall you my son? In other words, so according to the lesson I just gave you, former, and my advice, shall you, you should behave with my son. And he finishes up with, you have me, have you not? Have here means understand me, do you not? And Reynaldo might as well be winking back at him. He says, my lord, I have. Polonius says, God will you, fare you well. So that letter salad there was short for God be with you. It's also where the word goodbye comes from. Farewell. Reynaldo says, good, my lord, which is a sort of way of saying goodbye as well. In other words, my good lord, I'm going. But of course, good luck leaving a room Polonius is in. Polonius yells after him, observe his inclination in yourself. He's forgotten to mention that he should observe Laertes' behavior, the things he's inclined to do, in other words, for himself. So not just trust people, but also try and spy it himself. And Reynaldo yells back, I shall, my lord. And Polonius adds the non sequitur, and let him ply his music. In other words, make sure he applies himself to his music lessons. And Reynaldo, who's basically gone by now, says, Well, my lord, great idea, bye. And Polonius gives one final farewell after Reynaldo. And just looking back on what we've seen in this brief little scene, which is often cut to save time on the famous four-hour running length, you see some real clues to how Polonius operates. You see his use of spies. You see his use of sort of overly clever techniques. You also see how clever he thinks he is. So there's really a lot of incredibly useful information about him in this scene. So even if it's not in the version you're performing or reading, it's very much worth looking at. And after this little scene, we have something really important happening, which is that Ophelia comes back. And the first thing Polonius says to her is, how now, Ophelia, what's the matter? How now is sort of a generic greeting. It can also be something like, what's this? And his next thing he says, what's the matter? You get the sense that something is clearly not all right with her. And Polonius picks up on that immediately. And she says, oh, my Lord, my Lord, I've been so affrighted. So she's terrified. Affrighted is just frightened. And her response is to go right to her dad. She's trained that way. And Polonius says, with what in the name of God? What scared you? Maybe she's crying. Maybe she's gulping down sobs. And she says, my Lord, as I was sewing in my closet, Lord Hamlet, with his doublet all unbraced, no hat upon his head, his stockings fouled, ungartered, and down jived to his ankle, pale as his shirt, his knees knocking each other, and with a look so piteous in purport, as if he had been loosed out of hell to speak of horrors, he comes before me. 
So this is one run-on sentence. It, by the way, makes her sound very young, like a real kid. And in some ways she is. She could be very young in this time. So she says, when I was sewing in my closet, a closet is like a small private room, not the place where you hang your shirts. So I was sewing there. I was just minding my own business. And then Lord Hamlet, she calls him Lord Hamlet, not Hamlet, with his doublet all unbraced. A doublet is like a tight jacket that was worn in the Renaissance times in England. Almost all men wore it. And unbraced means unbuttoned or unclasped. So it's hanging open. No hat upon his head, because everyone wore hats at this time in polite society. His stockings fouled. Men also wore stockings, essentially tall socks. And these ones are fouled. In other words, they're dirty. Ungartered, which means that they're not clipped to the rest of his clothing, to his pants. There's nothing keeping them up. And so what happens? They're down-jived to his ankle. Jives are shackles. They're leg irons. And this is a word that Shakespeare invents. It means that they're fallen down into rolls. So if you have big socks that fall down, they essentially turn into shackles on your ankles. So they're dirty and fallen down. Pale as his shirt. So as white as the shirt he's wearing. His knees knocking each other. And with a look so piteous in purport... Purport is the expression or effect of them, and piteous just means that it inspires pity in the people who see it. And notice the strong P sounds there. It really gives you a sense of the impact this is having on her. Piteous in purport. And the look is so piteous, as if he had been loosed out of hell to speak of horrors. As if he had been let loose out of hell to talk about the terrible things that were happening there. In some ways, this is a more accurate description of the ghost than it is of Hamlet, even though the ghost is coming from purgatory. It goes back to that list of horrors that the ghost can't say to flesh and blood because it would make their eyes pop out. So she's done this full description. And with all that, he comes before me. And this is the, essentially the picture of a crazy person that anyone would know. And so Polonius immediately says, mad for thy love? In other words, was he driven crazy by your love or crazily attempting to get your love? And Ophelia says, my Lord, I do not know, but truly I do fear it. Fear here means like suspect or I'm anxious that it's true. Polonius wants to know more. He says, what said he? What did he say? Ophelia says, he took me by the wrist and held me hard. Then goes he to the length of all his arm, and with his other hand thus o'er his brow, he falls to such perusal of my face as he would draw it. So he holds her wrist, and then he puts his arm all the way out. He holds her with a stiff arm out, and with his other hand thus o'er his brow. So he takes his other hand and puts it like this on his brows. The nice thing about this is that the actress playing Ophelia can essentially decide what that gesture is, because all she has is the word thus, so she has to act out. And with that, he falls to, he goes into such perusal of my face, such sort of close examination or inspection of her face, as he would draw it, as if he was going to draw it. So like an artist looking at a model. Long stayed he so. He stayed that way a long time. And notice how this short line is like a little pause in the middle of the speech, which has been all long lines until now. So it gives you that sense of that pause where he just stays like that for what seems like hours. She goes on, at last, a little shaking of mine arm, and thrice his head thus waving up and down, he raised a sigh so piteous and profound as it did seem to shatter all his bulk and end his being. So finally he shakes her arm a little bit and thrice his head, so three times he essentially nods his head up and down. And then he raises a sigh, he gives a sigh so piteous, there's that word again, and profound, profound not like full of meaning man, but like deep, almost like a well. And again, it's those repeated P sounds. So it was so piteous and profound as it did seem to shatter all his bulk and end his being, as if it would break his entire bulk, his body, and end his being. In other words, kill him, but it's a much nicer way to say kill him. The other thing is that at this time, they believed that your sighs were literally your breath and you had a limited supply of that. So in some ways, every sigh and every breath let out some of your spirit. 
So he gave a sigh that was so deep, all of his spirit exited his body, and it seemed like he would die. And she finishes. That done, he lets me go, and with his head over his shoulder turned, he seemed to find his way without his eyes, for out of doors he went without their help, and to the last, bended their light on me. So after his sigh, he let go of her wrist, and then he turns his head over his shoulder towards her, and he found his way out of the doors without the help of his eyes. So he went out staring at her the whole time and just walked through the door without looking at it. To the last means until the last moment he was in the room, bended their light is a very beautiful way of saying he sort of focused the gaze of his eyes on her. And this raises a huge number of questions. It's in kind of an incredible image. One thing is that we don't know how long after the ghost conversation this scene is. We don't know if it's been a few weeks or months. We don't know if it's been a day. It seems like Hamlet's madness plan is already in effect at this point. And in the next scene, we'll see a lot of talk about it. Was this calculated on Hamlet's part? Or was he just very sad that he was going to have to lose her at some point if he carried out this revenge? There's a slew of questions. And one of the things you can do as a reader or a director or an actor is say, when do we think this happened? Why do we think he did this? And Polonius is totally disturbed by this news. He says, come, go with me. I will go seek the king. So this is so important. He's actually going to have to go talk to the king. He says, this is the very ecstasy of love whose violent property fordoes itself and leads the will to desperate undertakings as oft as any passion under heaven that does afflict our natures. Yeah, this is exactly the ecstasy, the madness of love. It's violent property, it's violent sort of tendency or nature fordoes itself, destroys itself, does itself in. So the idea is that the will of love is almost suicidal. And what else? It leads the will to desperate undertakings. Love leads your will to do despairing actions as oft, as often as any passion, as any emotion or mental condition under heaven that does afflict our natures, that befalls or injures our natures. And then there's a very sweet moment. He says, I am sorry. Almost like he's sorry for what she's had to go through. And he's sorry that maybe he put her through it. But then, of course, he falls almost immediately to blaming her. He thinks, what, have you given him any hard words of late? Like maybe she said something to him that set him off. And Ophelia is horrified. She says, no, my good lord, but as you did command, I did repel his letters and denied his access to me. Just like you commanded me, I repelled his letters. I sent his letters right back to him without opening them and denied his access to me. I wouldn't let him see me. And of course, Polonius' conclusion is, that hath made him mad. That's what made him insane. And he says, I am sorry that with better heed and judgment, I had not quoted him. Heed his attention, so he wishes he had been paying better attention to him. And quoted means sort of closely observed him. So I should have been paying more attention to him when I made you reject him. He goes on, I feared he did but trifle and meant to rack thee. Trifle means to like play around or mess with her. He meant to rack thee. Literally, it's like the word wreck. But what it means here is ruin her by having sex with her. But he says, beshrew my jealousy. Beshrew is like curse. And jealousy doesn't mean he's like jealous of someone. It means his suspicions. If he hadn't been so suspicious, she never would have rejected him and he never would have gone crazy. He says, by heaven, it is as proper to our age to cast beyond ourselves and our opinions as it is common for the younger sort to lack discretion. Proper to isn't in our modern sense of proper or improper. It means like characteristic of. It's just as characteristic of people my age, in other words, older, to cast beyond ourselves, to sort of read too much into things. So it's just as common for us to do that as it is for the younger sort, for younger people, to lack discretion, to lack sort of carefulness or common sense. And he's resolved to do what he says. He says, come, go we to the king. This must be known, which being kept close might move more grief to hide than hate to utter love. So let's untangle that a little bit. So we have to go see the king. And this has to be known by the king. The king has to know about this. 
this thing which being kept close, which being kept secret, might move, might inspire more grief to hide, more grief at what's going to happen to Hamlet if we hide it, than hate by the king if we utter, if we reveal the love. And one way to restate that line is that it would move more grief to hide love than it would move hate to utter love. So in other words, it's worse to hide it and make Hamlet come to grief than it is to tell the king that Hamlet was in love with Ophelia. So if he gets angry at that, that's fine, because it means that Hamlet's going to be taken care of. And he says, come, and drags her off. And it's hard to tell, but this is actually another one of those rhyming couplets that ends a scene. Because originally the words move and love were rhymes. Turns out pronunciation of words is another thing that can change in 400 years. Actually, the whole British accent that we know now is a much newer phenomenon. So the next time someone tells you Shakespeare should be performed in a British accent, ask them, which one? Anyway, Polonius has heard this amazing story from Ophelia, and now he says, come along with me, we're going to go tell the king about it. So she thought she was telling this to him in confidence, but now he's going to drag her in front of the king of Denmark, and she's going to have to talk about her weird boyfriend. Hugely embarrassing. Ophelia's really being put through the ringer already, and it's only the beginning of Act 2. And because Ophelia doesn't have a ton of stage time, it's really important to watch her progression here. She's going to be pulled in a ton of different directions, and it's going to wind up somewhere really bad, not to spoil the play for you. Okay, that's the end of part three. Come back for part four when the palace intrigue is going to get really good. And if you have a moment, go to clearshakespeare.com support and kick in a few bucks to make this possible. I really appreciate it. Bye.